Oh, this place is just loaded with talent. I don't know what to tell you. Upon your prayer request, I want you to remember that Tara and Toba had their baby this week, so we need to pray for them and uh, as they get adjusted to all of that. We got a text, and you got a, uh, uh, in the prayer life about Olivia Miller. She had a seizure this week, and uh, she's finally uh, got that under control, and they're working with some things there. They were supposed to come down this weekend, but it kind of took everything out of it, so uh, we need to pray for them. As I said earlier, Missy and Nate are both sick today, so we need to pray for them. And then Steve Brackeen uh, got a hold of me. Um, he has a, a, another gentleman who uh, works his range there. Uh, his name is Keith uh, Vanderpool. And uh, his, uh, his, his girlfriend passed away this morning. So uh, we need to pray for him and, <clears throat> you know, pray that and Steve get a chance to witness to him and talk to him and, <clears throat> and use it uh, for the Lord's honor and glory as we <clears throat> people go through these tough times. So put those on your prayer list. And I'll keep you updated as we, uh, as we go through the week. Now, this morning, I want to go back to Proverbs chapter 21. And this is going to be our last section uh, in the book of Proverbs chapter 21. And it kind of all goes together. <clears throat> I, 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 don't, <clears throat> I don't plan my sermons out. I just go with the flow wherever I'm at <clears throat> is what I preach. I don't look for holidays or anything like that or special days, but... Um, since uh, this week is Halloween, this is kind of a, a fitting sermon, I would guess, uh, for that. I didn't plan it that way. I told the people in the Bible Institute yesterday that this would be a great supplement to where we're at. Uh, what I've started in Bible Institute is we, uh, we've laid some foundational things, and then I began to bring them uh, through, uh, broke the Bible down into 17 basic components and uh, major components. And then we're learning every one of them and then putting them back together and, and then you'll get the whole picture of the Bible together. Well, we were on the church age yesterday and uh, I told them that today's sermon was going to go a lot with where we're at today and, and help uh, uh, put it together. You know, you're not going to learn everything. Uh, well, you will learn everything. But I mean, as we go through Bible Institute, uh, there'll be times that um, before we get to a certain section, We'll deal with it through here, deal with it there. And I'll always make you aware of that, that that's going to be something that you want to uh, um, get as a supplement to put into your Bible. I know that there's a lot of people here today in our church who really are going after the Word of God. Let me just say this to you. This will be a key, uh, key chapter for you or key lesson for you to help you put some things together. We've been talking about understanding. I think today when you leave... <clears throat> and I've given you a lot of good under, examples of understanding. I think when you leave today, <clears throat> you'll redefine that word in your life based on what we're going to look at. And the last, uh, the last part of this chapter, chapter 21, these last verses here, uh, they all deal with the Antichrist. So our subject today is going to be dealing with that and dealing with the devil and how it all kind of works out. Now, you know, found in the Bible, the Antichrist has different names, and you need to recognize these so when you find them or read them, then you know what we're talking about. First of all, he's called the son of perdition. He's called that only two times in the Bible, and that in itself is a great key. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but John 17, 12, and then, of course, Revelation chapter 17, verse 11. He's also called in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the man of sin. He's called the great red dragon or the dragon in Isaiah 27 and Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Genesis chapter 3, he's called the serpent. He's also called that in Isaiah chapter 27. He's called the Antichrist. 
You'll find that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. You'll find it again in, in verse 22. You'll find it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. And then you'll find it in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. Antichrist. Anti is the word that is against. And uh, when we grew up in church history as a young uh, movement uh, called the Baptist, we were called Anabaptist. And we were called Anabaptist by the Roman Catholic Church because we were against infant baptism. Anna means against. So we have the Antichrist, which means he's against Christ. Now, you're going to hear a lot of things today you probably have never heard before. Many of you <coughs> who have been around for a while, this is, you know, review for a lot of you. But <coughs> uh, hopefully there'll be something new here. If not, I'll make something up and you won't know the difference. But anyway, <coughs> you're going to hear a lot of things today. Just give me a second. I just quit. It's like, you know, like I'm pretending there's nothing wrong. I, I, I got to get this up. You know, it's a, I used to watch that, that uh, we, we, when we used to, I used to do weddings. The, the cameraman, you know, we're always pretending like something, you can't see something. Like I'm going to sit up here and pretend like I'm not really got something in my throat. So I'll just, you know, not, no, let's just get it up, get it out and we'll move on. Well, I used to do weddings. The cameraman would always come up and they would say, do you mind if I would come up and take pictures at the wedding? And I'd say, I don't mind. You know, you can go wherever you want to go as long as you don't, you know, interfere with what I'm doing. And I've always thought this was an amazing, an amazing phenomenon. Cameramen at weddings think if they tiptoe around the wedding, they're invisible. It's not true. They're t- 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 Like, nobody can see you if you tiptoe. That's not the way it works. <laughs> You're going to hear a lot of things today, probably that you haven't heard before. First thing I want to tell you is this, and I'll tell you when they come up. In the Bible, you have two Christs. That is foreign today. You have two Christs. The Bible makes it very clear in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, about that, when he calls the Lord Jesus Christ his Christ. In Luke chapter 2, verse 22, again, he's very careful to make the distinction where he calls the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord's Christ. And then again in Acts chapter 4, verse 26, he uses the term his Christ. You see, most people don't understand what the word Christ means. The word Christ means Christos. It means the anointed one. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 14, that the devil, before he fell, Lucifer, the anointed cherub, he was anointed, so he is a Christ. And of course, we know that when the Bible talks about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this earth, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit of God to do what he was the work of his father. So he's anointed, so he's a Christ. So you have two Christs in your Bible. It's really hard sometimes to find out in life which Christ is which. I tell people all the time, if the devil and the Lord Jesus came in that back room and the Lord came up this side and stood on this side and the devil came up and stood on this side, you couldn't tell them apart. They look exactly the same. Now, And that's hard for most people because all of our lives we've seen the picture of Christ with the long flowing brown hair, you know, and the puppy dog eyes and, you know, kind of looking up at his father and everybody thinks that's what he looks like. 
On the other hand, we get the devil, his picture, he's in a red union suit with horns and a pitchfork and a tail and a cleft foot, and that's what we think it is, you see. That's not the way it works. There's two Christs in the Bible, and if those two Christs walked in today and one stood on this side and one stood on that side, you would not be able to tell them apart. You say, well, I know by the scars in his hands and his feet. You think the devil can't imitate that? Down in Mexico in Catholic churches on Easter, the statues bleed from their hands and their feet. That ain't nothing for him. No, no. There's only one way you could tell them apart, and that's when they open their mouth. One of them would say, thus saith the Lord, and tell you the truth. The other one would change what God's Word said, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and 2, 3. And uh, he, would, he would corrupt the Word of God. So you have two Christs, and you have to understand the difference between the two. I've told you before that <clears throat> the theme of the Bible is two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. All through the Bible... With that theme, you will find two main characters, two men, battling over that kingdom. Now, this is all supplementary, basic, fundamental information to prepare you for where we're going here in just a few moments. And the Bible will wrap itself around these two men as you follow them through the battle for the kingdom, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And along with that, all down through history, history will unfold around these two men. And the two men are the two Christ, Christ and the devil. And I've told you many times that all history from a Bible perspective, getting understanding, will simply be God moving down through history to accomplish his plan and the devil moving in opposition to stop that plan. If you ever wanted to put history of the world, history of America, history of Europe, history of the world in general into a context, and we're big on context here, the context is simply God moving in one way to do his plan, the devil moving it to stop it. I don't care where you're at in history. That's what's going on. That, from anybody who has understanding with the Bible, is history 101. Now, you won't get that in college. You won't get that in high school. You won't get that in grade school. But you get that out of the Bible when you put the Bible and connect it up to history and understand the concept of the two Christ. Now, in laying out these two men... And again, this is all foundational stuff here for where we're going. Now, in laying out these two men in the Bible, you'll find, as I've already said, both of them are Christ. You will find that both of them have a female counterpart. You will find that both have a city. You will find that both have a church. You will find that both have a Bible. You will find that both have a seed. You will find that both have ministers, and you will find when both of them show up, they both show up on a white horse. You'll find that all the way through the Bible. The Antichrist, when he shows up, he shows up in Revelation chapter 6 on a white horse. When Christ shows up at the second coming of Christ, the true Christ, he shows up in Revelation 19 on a white horse. Sometimes it's really confusing to tell which Christ you're dealing with. <clears throat> and this is why one of the main, devil's main fear has been religion. He knows that once he takes the Bible from you, you have no ability to discern which Christ it is, so you wind up spending your whole life going to a church where Christ is there. Just the wrong one. Just the wrong one. 
Now, when it comes to the Antichrist, and that's the subject today, <clears throat> you will find more information on him in the Bible than any other person in history outside <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Lord's Christ. Now, for the record, the definitive chapter on the man of sin, the devil, the serpent, the Antichrist in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it will be Job chapter 40 and 41. In the New Testament, it'll be Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 12 and 13 shows you in the New Testament the whole concept of who the devil is, gives you a history, a background, gives you everything you need as he comes down to earth in the middle of the tribulation period. Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41, without a doubt, I say it again, without a doubt, without a doubt, are the two greatest chapters in the Old Testament, but I would say the whole Bible on giving you the information on him. Chapter 40 deals with a creature called behemoth. A behemoth is a multi-mixture monster. And in Job chapter 40, the behemoth, when you come down through there, will represent for you the Antichrist. When you get into chapter 41, you find another creature. His name is Leviathan. And Leviathan will represent the person of Satan for us. Now, you know me and you know that I don't put stock, any stock, much stock, no stock at all, in higher education when it comes to the Bible. I think Bible colleges are a joke. I think most Bible seminars are a joke. I think that you'll go there, you'll never learn the Bible. All you'll learn is not to believe the Bible anymore. And I say that based on what I'm about to say. If you would go into Isaiah or into Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41, and you'd read about Behemoth, you would come down there, and the scholarly minds who want to help you out with the cross references in your Bible would tell you. Now, this is the greatest scholarly minds who spend all their time studying Greek and Hebrew. They would tell you that Behemoth, as you find him in Job chapter 40, was an elephant or a crocodile. When you would come to Job chapter 41 and you'd read about Leviathan, you would find again the greatest scholarly minds in all of the world that are teaching and giving young men and young ladies the Bible. They would tell you that Leviathan was a whale or a whirlpool. Now, I've never understood the connection between a whale and a whirlpool. I can get where you could miss maybe an elephant for a crocodile. I mean, I get that. But how you can miss a whale and a whirlpool, I don't get it. And I've never understood that the Bible says down a little farther in Job chapter 41 that this Leviathan would speak soft words to you and compel you to follow them. Now, maybe there's some Salinity and flushing a toilet and watching the water go down. I don't know. Maybe there's some kind of peace in a whirlpool. I've never seen or never heard of a whale whispering sweet words in your ear. This is scholarship. When all you'd have to do would go to Dollar General and for one dollar buy a King James 1611 authorized version and you would find in that dollar Bible everything you need to find out who behemoth is and leviathan is. 
God told me one time in a Bible study, I was laying this out, and he says, he, see, he disagreed with me, and he says, well, I've been to Bible college. And I said, hey, you need to get your money back. Because you got ripped off. Now, in Job chapter 40, verse 13, 41, verse 13, it's got a great verse. And it says, who can discover the face of his garment? Now, I want you to note the word garment, and we're going to come back and talk about this in a little bit later. But in history, when you lay out uh, with understanding, you'll find where the Bible says that, that the devil, you discover him by the face of his garments, you will find the key word being garment there. When you use your Bible and come down through history, you will find that the devil changes garments seven times from Genesis to Revelation chapter 22. We'll give them to you here in a little bit. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, the title, Mystery Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots and Abominations of Earth. This explains that mystery. You'll see it completely and understand. In the Bible, there are seven mysteries that you and I are not only to know, but I as a pastor am to be a steward of and teach my people. You'll find it on the website, along with the other seven series. One of the seven mysteries given to the church is the mystery of Babylon the Great. And the mystery is this. Who is she? How did she survive down through history? How did the Babylon mystery religion, the mother of Harlem, in other words, there's one religion that is the mother of all the other religions that the Bible calls harlots that spawned them all. You know what the mystery is? Who is she? You know what the mystery is? Where is she, where, where is she today? How did she survive through 6,000 years of history? I had a number of people call me this week with uh, Trump released all the, the uh, stuff from the Kennedy assassination. Thousands and thousands of documents. And, and, and I, and I uh, because of the, uh, the thing that we did a number of years ago in the book that we have out on who killed JFK, uh, based on the Bible, uh, you know, people were, were really wondering what my take was on it. Now, here's my take on it. They'll never be able to connect the dots. They'll never be able to get to the truth. They'll never find the real cause and the effect that was behind the Kennedy assassination because they don't have understanding. They don't understand, nor could they ever, how the Babylon mystery religion, the mother of harlots, figured into that day in Dallas in 1963, November 22nd, just coming up in a couple of weeks. They'll never figure it out. They're never able to connect the dots. You know why? They don't have understanding. They don't understand the mystery. The mystery is, who is this woman? The mystery is, what is this woman doing today? Is she dead? Is she at John Knox Village in retirement? Where's she at? What's she doing? The great mystery is, how did this woman, Babylon, mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots of the whole earth, how did she survive without anybody knowing it? I mean, come on. You can't do anything in America today and not be on a video camera. They're everywhere. How did she survive through 6,000 years of history? Nobody ever caught her. Nobody ever saw her. Very few did. 
We're going to explain that mystery to you here in a little bit. Now, you want to get this if you're in Bible Institute or just want to learn your Bible. When you begin to lay the devil out through Proverbs and through the Bible, you have a natural breakdown of how to study him. Now, I'm big on natural breakdown because I believe that God told us that he were to rightly divide the word of truth. And for us to rightly divide the word of truth, then he's got to put some divisions in there. If you don't rightly divide the word of truth, then you're going to wrongly divide the word of truth. When I teach you how to rightly divide the truth, or I write it, do it myself, I never force something. I never make something where it's not there. People do that all the time. People want to believe something so desperately, they'll organize whatever they want to do to make it fit what they want to believe. I, I don't do that. And I don't do that because I don't really care what I believe about the Bible. I just want the truth. If somebody came in here and said, prove to me that, that uh, you know, speaking in tongues was the right thing to do, I'd, I'd speak in more tongues than all of you. If somebody convinced me that healing was the right thing to do, I wouldn't even be here this morning. If I had the gift of healing and somebody proved that to me in the Bible, I'd be down Children's Mercy Hospital. I'd be doing some good work. In other words, I don't have any pet thing I want to believe. Somebody says, well, you've got the hobby horse of the King's Age Bible. You're out of your mind, bugwit. You have no clue. I could care less about the King's Age Bible. If I thought the NIV was the Word of God, I'd have it. If I thought living letters or dead epistles or good news for modern man or in some cases bad news for modern man was the Bible, I'd use it. I just want the truth. I don't have any hobby horses. I just know from history and the Bible what is the true word of God. I'm sorry you don't. But don't blame me for believing it and making my hobby horse when you're so stupid when it comes to the issues you couldn't even discuss it. I got kids in the junior high or the high school. I'd take any preacher out there, anybody, and put him up against some of you guys because you know what you have. I don't care. I told people a long time ago, I will change Whatever I believe, no matter how long I believed it, I would change it in 10 seconds or less, whatever it may be. When somebody opens up the Word of God and shows me something different of what I believe, that's where I'm at with it. I don't care. I just want the truth. And you're either going to rightly divide the Bible or you're going to wrongly divide it. And the Bible will have natural divisions. Now, when it comes to the devil, I want to show you one. You want to study the devil? Don't study him too close. Some of you have been hanging out with him too long anyhow. Probably know him better than I do. But when it comes to the Bible, when you want to study the devil, the Antichrist and the whole concept, you study around the fact that the devil gets kicked out of heaven three times. Your whole Bible is wrapped around those three times that he's booted out. From Genesis, uh, Revelation, uh, excuse me, uh, from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, excuse me, he's kicked out positionally. He's no longer the anointed cherub. He's kicked out of heaven positionally and he loses that position. Now he comes to earth and the Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. Now he stays the accuser of the brethren all the way up through the time in the Old Testament after that, all the way up through the New Testament to the time that we're living in, he stays up as the accuser of the brethren. And in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 is a great example of that. 
He stays as the accuser of the brethren right up to Revelation chapter 12 and 13. And in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, he's kicked out the seven time, second time. And now he's kicked out as the accuser of the brethren, and he comes to earth as the Antichrist. So you have the first time he's kicked out. The whole Bible wraps itself around that. Then in the middle of the tribulation, you have the second time he's kicked out. He's kicked out now uh, bodily. He's kicked out positionally before. And then in Revelation chapter 20, at the end of the chapter, he's kicked out for the final time, and he's kicked out eternally. He goes to the lake fire. So when you want to study him, you want to rightly divide who he is, study him in that format. Study the fact that he was kicked out positionally, that he was kicked out bodily, that he's kicked out eternally. And you'll hit everything in the right place, rightly divided. This format will divide up your Bible and biblical history around those three exits that he does. This is called, as I said in 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, Proverbs doctrinally will be about Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10 in particular. We've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, last week, I think, the 10 virgin. We know that five were wise and five were foolish. So along with all of that, Proverbs will uh, lay itself out around six characters that you want to follow. And you want to get these six characters down. I've told you about them over and over again. Some of you have, some of you didn't. But you're going to find the book of Proverbs and really the whole Bible. And really all of life will build around these six characters. The first one will be the whorish woman found in Proverbs. The second one will be another title for the same woman, little different slant, and that is the strange woman. This will be the female deity that is connected with the Antichrist down through the Old Testament, uh, the devil, and up into the New Testament today, and then on into the tribulation period. You're going to find the third character is an evil man. This will be the Antichrist or the devil himself, called the son of perdition, the man of sin, however you want to paint him. The fourth, the fourth character will be a foolish man. This will be our five virgins who were foolish, and they... they take the mark of the beast, they fall into everything that he says, and we find them. The fifth one will be the wise man, and the wise man will be the other five virgins who were wise, and they follow what the Bible says, they follow God, and they find their Messiah, and they get restored as the nation of Israel at the end. Our sixth one will be a virtuous woman, and she's found in Proverbs chapter 31. And this is the virtuous woman, and she represents the nation of Israel doctrinally and historically, represents you and I as the church uh, inspirationally. And what we see through Proverbs, and Proverbs is kind of like a glimpse of the whole Bible. But more than that, Proverbs is kind of like a glimpse of life on planet Earth. It shows you that in our own world that we live in, you know what you have? You have wise men and you have foolish men. You have a whorish woman that's a church, that's the wrong church, and you have a virtuous woman that is the right church. You have, you have an evil man who is the devil and the forces of evil, and you have all those things working against us. So now, with that in mind, that little introduction, let's turn our attention now to Proverbs chapter 21, and we're going to pick it up in verse 24 through 31. I, I tell you right now, we're not going to get through all of this today because there's a lot of material that I want you to have, and I want to take my time, 
And uh, I think you'll leave here today with a little better understanding about how the Bible can really impact your life. And maybe, 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 just maybe, somebody here will get the lights turned on and say, you know what, I'm going to quit my goofy ways and I'm going to start to get into that book. I doubt it, but you never know. Now, here's what it says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 24. Proud and haughty scorner is his name, who dealeth in proud wrath. The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hand refused to labor. He covereth greedily all the day long, coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination, how much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind. A false witness shall perish, but the man that heareth speaketh constantly. A wicked man hardeneth his face, but as for the upright he directeth his way. There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. Will, would you stand up and ask God blessing on our service this morning? Amen. Now, we're going to focus on these verses as they apply to the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, and the devil. I get that. But I want you to know that as we go through here, I will not only teach you the, the doctrinal historical application, but I will switch over sometimes and give you the practical how it applies to you and me. There's great parallels here, and I would hate to miss that. That's why we're not going to get through all of this today, but I want to get through enough. The Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 44, that you of your father the devil, and the lust of your father he will do. Now, I know that when we get saved, we enter from death into life, light, from darkness into light. I get that. Uh, we're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. All things become new. I understand that. But I want to tell you this. We still have problems in the flesh, and the problems in our flesh are based on John chapter 8, verse 44 you're going to find that the things that were the characteristics of the devil, we're going to see them here in a moment, the things that were the characteristics of the devil that was your life before you got saved, even though you're no longer part of that, they're going to have an influence through your flesh to try to drag you down. And this is the battle between the old nature and the new nature. So keep that in mind, and I'll, uh, you'll see me flip back and forth, and I'll let you know when I do it. Uh, you'll be able to know when I do it because you're going to feel convicted about it, but that's okay. Now look at verse 24. Proud and haughty scorner is his name, who dealeth in proud wrath. Now the key word here will be proud wrath, and this is a direct relationship to the Antichrist, direct reference to him. And uh, it'll be a proud wrath. There's two wraths in the Bible. There's God's holy wrath that is poured out on everybody on earth during the tribulation period. And then there's the proud wrath that the Antichrist has. And we'll talk about that. And as we said, this is a direct reference to our man of sin, the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 12, 12 says this. Remember now, Revelation chapter 12 is when he comes to earth. He, this is when he's kicked, out, he's kicked out bodily. 
where all this time now he's been before the throne like Job 1, accusing the brethren. Now he's kicked out. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 that the accuser of our brethren is cast down. He's out. And he comes to earth as the Antichrist. When he shows up, here's what he says. Therefore rejoice ye heaven, and he that dwell in them. Woe the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you. See that thing? He's kicked out. He's no longer the accuser of brethren. He's coming down to earth. Look what it says. Come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. We know that from the Bible, the key driving force uh, in the devil's life and everything that he does in his agenda will be his pride. Pride will always be the number one problem that we have. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, you'll find is a great key in your Bible because it talks about six things that God hates. And then it adds a seventh one to cap it off that is, makes it an abomination. But the Bible is very clear to separate the first six from the seventh. Because the reason he did that, he wanted to draw your attention to what he's talking about here. What you have in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, six things, is 666. And what you have here is the characteristics of the devil, his character traits. It lists them in order. And I, I, if I had time this morning, I would take those seven things and I'd start in Genesis and I'd walk those things that he deals with through your whole Bible and wind up on the other end. Uh, I don't have time this morning. But that's how important and powerful this, this, this passage is. Proverbs 6, verse 16, six things that God hates. The seventh makes it an abomination. You know the number one thing that his problem was? A proud look. You know the biggest problem that you and I, I'm going to switch over now to me and you. You know the biggest problem that you and I have? Number one problem. The number one problem we have is our pride. Pride keeps us from doing what's right when we know to do what's right. Pride keeps us from making things right with people when we know we should. Pride keeps us from doing all the things that God wants us to do. We get our back up in the air about something. Pride sets in. That's the number one problem. That's the number one problem with the devil. That's the number one problem with God's people who don't keep it in check. In Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, it was his pride. A pride in his beauty. Pride in his wisdom that made him rebel against God. You see it. You see it. You see it in people today, who are, women who are drop-dead gorgeous, beautiful, that are stuck on themselves. They think they're the most beautiful woman in the world. Their pride enters in. You find people who go to, Bible, go to Bible colleges or anywhere, and they get an education, and they have pride in that education. You see, the real way it should work for you, the more you study the Bible, the more you get the Bible, the more you get of God, the more you learn about God and His Word, the more broken you should become. You go to a college someplace or wherever and they teach you all these things, you come out puffed up. When you get into the book and you get what God has for you biblically, it breaks you down. Pride was his problem. Job chapter 41 verse 15 talks about him and in descriptive form it says that his scales... This is Leviathan now, the dragon. His scales are his pride. That's an interesting study. Job chapter 41, verse 34 says that he is the king over all the children of pride. You bet he is. And for the record, just let me say this. 
the devil was beaten at Calvary, and he knows he cannot win. He's under no illusion that he's going to defeat Christ. I mean, the devil, among all the other things of his wisdom and beauty, he can read, and he obviously read the last chapter of the Bible. What would keep a man who knows he's been defeated because he knows the Bible so well, what would keep him on the track of destruction and perdition to bring him to the place where in spite of the fact he knows he cannot win, he will not give up? One word, pride. It's the same pride in your life and my life that will keep us from doing right when we know we're doing wrong. It's the same pride in our life that won't accept, allow you to accept the truth of God's Word when you see it in black and white because you've been educated out of your intelligence. Pride. Like you and me out of fellowship. The devil knows that, the devil knows, he can read. He knows Job 9, 4, which says, Who hath, who hath hardened himself against me and prospered? Nobody. And he knows that the, at the, at the, at the, uh, Great white throw at the, at the second coming of Christ, he's going to get clobbered. But he still goes on because of blind pride. And you and I know that at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to get clobbered. But we still go on in our blind pride, don't we? See the parallels? Look at verse 25. The desire of the slothful killeth him. For his hands refused to labor. Now this, this guy gets killed here uh, because his desire in life is to do nothing, no work. Inspirationally, it's very clear. I mean, we, we don't have to spend a lot of time with it. We've talked about it many, many times under the form of slothfulness in Proverbs up to this point, many times. Uh, it, a man gets destroyed because he's lazy. A Christian will lose everything he has and get and get destroyed in the judgment seat of Christ because they're lazy. Amen. They'll lose their house. They'll lose their car. They'll make bad investments. They'll do all kinds of stupid stuff when it won't work and get a good job because they're lazy, slothful. So we, we don't have to deal with that. But doctrinally, this is dealing with what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Jew in the tribulation who won't work to wash their own robes like we saw in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. His desire is to the Antichrist, and he will not do as the Bible says in Revelation chapter 14, 12, where he has to keep the commandments of God in faith in Jesus Christ. It's the old tribulation system that God has of salvation based on the Old Testament and New Testament that he has to wash his own robe by the things that he does with his hands. And he refuses to do it. John chapter 9, verse 24, a tribulation passage. Jesus said, I must do the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. Now, I'll just talk from a practical application here. There's a time coming in your life when you won't be able to do the work of God. And the devil, the devil is, is famous. I heard an old preacher one time, he preached a sermon about the meeting that the devil and the demons had to destroy mankind. And uh, one of them, uh, they got around in a meeting and their devil was in the middle of the meeting and all the hordes of demons and the devil said, okay guys, how are we going to destroy man on planet earth? We want them all in hell. How are we going to get them? One of the demonic forces raised their hand and says, I know sir, let's tell everybody that there is no God. And uh, 
Everybody thought that was a good idea. The devil thought about it and he says, man, you know what? That won't work. The Bible says in Romans chapter, in Romans, in the book of Romans, that, the, um, that everything that God created is a manifestation of him. We can't do that. We can't, we can't get up and say there is no God. Somebody said, I got an idea, sir. Why don't we tell him that there's no heaven? The devil said, well, you know what? I'm not sure that's a good idea because I'll tell you, all these people that their grandmas and their grandpas taught them the Bible and taught them about heaven and taught them about loving God and they died and they went to heaven and they're looking to that and reading in the Bible about Revelation 21 and all that stuff. I don't think that's going to work either. Somebody said, I got it. The devil said, what do you got? He says, just tell them there ain't no hell. The devil says, you used to be a Jehovah Witness? He says, you know, he says, I don't think that'll work. He said, over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus preached on hell in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're gonna, I know the Jehovah Witnesses are going to buy into your theory, but you know what? Look what everybody looks at them. They think they're idiots. I mean, you'll find people who want to be Lutherans. You'll find people who want to be Catholic. You'll find people who want to be Muslims and morons. You don't find anybody who wants to be a Jehovah Witness. Spend your life going from door to door getting cats thrown at you and dogs chased on you and water thrown out at you. He says, that's, that's a good idea, but I don't think that'll work. And they got there and they all pondered and finally went in the back and said, sir, I got the answer. And he says, I hope so because we're running out of time here. What is the answer? How in the world are we going to destroy mankind on earth? And he says, don't tell them there's no God. Don't tell them there's no heaven. Don't tell them there's no hell. Just tell them. There's no hurry. Just tell them there's no hurry. Take your time. Enjoy your life. While the sun's out, play in the sun with the fun. But the Bible says there's a nighttime coming when we're not going to be able to work. There's a time coming in your life you're not going to be able to do the work of God. That's why you ought to work for, the, work for the night is coming. You ought to do right now what you can do. Now, that's the practical application. But in the tribulation period, there's coming a time. Now, here's our 10 version, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 10. Five had a desire to do the work and follow what the Word of God says. Five did not. And the Bible says down there that uh, when the Lord came back, the door was shut. No more work. And there's coming a time in your life and my life that God has called you and I to do a work now. He says, I've begun a good work in you and before and under the day of Jesus Christ. He wants to do that work in you. The question is, you don't want to do it. And there's coming a time when your door's going to be shut. My door's going to be shut. And verse 25 says, for his hands refuse to labor. The tribulation period, they have to wash their own robes. They have to do what the Bible says they have to do. And he won't do the work of God that God requires of him. And in the tribulation period, it gets him killed. Now look at verse 26. He that coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. Now, that's the Antichrist there directly, the man of sin who covets everything that God has and God is. In the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, when you get down to verse 17, the last commandment of the tenth one was, Thou shalt not covet. 
In Ezekiel chapter 28, again, in Isaiah 14, again, it shows us that his original desire uh, was to ha- is to, to have all the things that are not rightly his. That's covetousness. His covetousness turned into an obsession to be like God. Isaiah 14, 4, uh, 14, 14 says, he says, I will be like the most high God. He had the wisdom, he had the beauty, he had everything. But the devil, slipping over to the inspirational now, the devil have the same problem that you and I have. Because you know what? If you're saved here this morning, you and I have everything. All the riches and glory in Christ Jesus are at your disposal. You got the Bible, the greatest book the world has ever seen. You got the Holy Spirit of God to lead and guide you. You have everything at your fingertips. He put in Christ. When you got in Christ, you got it all. But it just isn't enough for you, is it? You want more. That was the devil's problem. He had it all. He was the anointed sheriff. If I had time this morning, I'd detail you out and show you his throne in Jerusalem back in Genesis 1, that he was over everything in God's creation. He was turned over to him, and he had it all. And it wasn't enough. God gives us everything that he gives us. And yet we covet the things of the world. We covet the things that are out there. We covet the things that don't matter. We focus on what we don't have instead of focusing on what we do have. We all do it. His covetousness turned into an obsession. He's not satisfied with who he was, the anointed chair, but he wants what he can't have. Well, that's a tremendous illustration, as said, for us. We always, like the devil, we'll focus on what we don't have. We have everything in Christ Jesus, and yet we're not content. Like the devil, in what we have it all. So he rebelled against God through this covetousness all the day long, and so do we. And that covetous spirit will be his undoing and his ultimate end. And I want to tell you something, it will be ours too. Now look at the last part of the verse. But the righteous giveth and spareth not. Now doctrinally, flipping back here, this is the reference to the 144,000 found in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14. They do the work, and that work is detailed out for you in great detail in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 10. They're going to the highways and the byways. They're taking the everlasting gospel to the Gentiles. And while, while the, the, the tribulation is going on, they're doing the work. And they're giving it out, and they're not sparing anything after the fact that when the Antichrist kills them and tries to hunt them down, he kills them. You know, the greatest attribute of God, and I know you know this, the greatest attribute of God would be His holiness. No question about that. But the second greatest attribute of God will be His attitude toward giving. He gave to us, and He spared us nothing. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on the crucifixion. If you didn't get out of that sermon how that He paid it all, how He spared nothing for us, you will probably never get it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave. 
And when he gave his son, he entered into a mode that once you trust him as your own personal Savior, he gives to you everything you need the rest of your life. My God shall supply all of my need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We talk about the ministry. Last week I, I declared to you and told you, but you already knew that the ministry is people. And that's true. But along with that, the ministry is giving to people all that they need and sparing them nothing. The ministry... The ministry is not about us. The ministry is about others. It's about what God gives you and then you taking it and giving it to somebody else unsparingly. Us giving back to God based on His giving to us and our understanding of it. Unconditional love and unconditional giving to them that need the true riches of God that you got freely that you give to somebody else. You know, every year, we're, at the end of the year, Jenny prepares and passes out uh, the giving record. You'll see them. They're in white envelopes, and they'll, uh, they'll, they'll pass them out here to save the postage on it. And the ones we don't fi find, we mail them to them. We have their address. And, that. and it's a record of your giving over the last year. And I, I've, always, I've always looked at that and thought about that, and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be something if God sent us a giving record every end of every year of what we've given back to Him? I mean, when we get our giving records, we, we don't see the reality of it. We don't understand it. We get it and want it because we want to get a tax write-off for the IRS when we do our taxes. But to me, giving records have always been a great reality check for us as God's people. I've watched down through history America changed, the world changed, and its change is in direct proportion to its losing the Word of God. When this country was founded in the 1700s up to about the 1800s, and up into the 1800s, there was a great national pride in our country and America and everything that we had because we knew it came from God. When our founding fathers wrote the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they couldn't do it without putting God because they all recognized that they wouldn't even exist as a nation without God. So they understood the price that was paid. So back in that day, the famous statesman stood up one time and he says, give me liberty or give me death. Talking about the oppression from England. As time moved on in America, things changed, people changed. But in the 1900s, we're now moving along and... and uh, um, the cry is, give me liberty. Nobody wanted to die for the country anymore. They just wanted liberty. We moved on in time and come up to where we're at today. In the 1700s, it was give me liberty or give me death. In the 1900s, it was give me liberty. Today, it's just give me. Just give me. And we covet greedily all day long. That's God's people we do. And that comes from the devil. That's what he did. Ye are of your father the devil and the lust of your father. I'll tell you something. The greatest problem you had before you got saved will be your biggest struggle after you get saved. Now, God may save you from your sins, and he may give you the ability to override every problem you have, but I want to tell you something. If you're going to override that problem, it's going to be the worst one you had before you got saved, in most cases. Look at verse 27. 
The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination, but how much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind. Now that's a great verse. This is going to be a blockbuster for you. It opens up one of the greatest unknown teaching about the tribulation in all history, really, about what really goes on and what has went on. When you want to talk about the solving the mystery of Babylon religion, this is where we're going to solve it. Now, in the Old Testament, I like to study words, English words. If I was French, I'd study French words. But my language is English. The worst thing I hate is going through the drive-thru at McDonald's and get somebody in the drive-thru that can't speak English. I'm all for immigrants, bring them over, but speak English. <laughs> the only one I feel comfortable in is Taco Bell. Nacho Bell Grande, I can speak Spanish. Nacho Bell Grande. <laughs> I like to study words. In the Old Testament, we had a religion called Baal worship. Baal worship had as its main ingredient for their religious experience cannibalism, eating people. In fact, when you study the word cannibal, it's a connection of two words. Canna, which means meat. Bull, Baal, which means Baal. Our word cannibal for eating people comes from Baal worshippers eating meat. During the tribulation period, the Antichrist will demand sacrifices. But it will be the Old Testament practice of eating people and drinking their blood, primarily the Jews, through the worship to him by cannibalism, eating flesh and drinking their blood. This is what they did throughout their whole Old Testament. Somebody says, oh, where do you get that? It's a conspiracy. They hide that stuff in books. You can go to any public library in Kansas City or any city in this town and find out the information I'm giving you. You won't. Don't get mad at me because I did. This is totally foreign today. I get it. But this is why in the tribulation they get their heads cut off. And in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, and again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, you're told that they get their head, they get beheaded. And they get beheaded because they're a sacrifice to God. In Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, when they brought the sacrifice, the first thing they did was cut off its head. No, no. Okay. They're all looking at me like I just come around a corner at midnight with my bright lights on and you're a deer standing in the middle of the road. Okay. I'm not going to turn the lights out. I'm going to run right over you. Look at Psalm 16. Get ready. Buckle your seatbelt. We need to get some, Darren, we need to get some seatbelts on some of these chairs here. <laughs> Psalm 16. Here it comes. Here it comes. One through five. Here it comes. Here it comes. These are all tribulation passages. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Here it comes. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names into my lips. You see that thing? Now there's somebody drinking, having a drink offering of blood based on somebody's name. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 38 says, and he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted? 
which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings, let them rise up and help you and be your protection. Now we already saw that the drink offerings are of blood. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32, the great chapter on God's wine and the devil's wine. Look at Psalms 44, verse 20 and 22. If we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hand to a strange God, shall not God stretch out, uh, search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Now here it comes. You want a sacrifice? Here it comes. Jew in the tribulation. Yea, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep. Sacrificial animals for the slaughter. All right, Psalm 14, verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? Oh, I look at Revelation, or look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second like to the bear, was raised himself up on one side. This is the Antichrist, by the way. And he had three ribs in his mouth and between his teeth of it. And they said unto us, Arise, devour much flesh. In the tribulation period, the Antichrist demands sacrifice, human sacrifice. That's the way it was in Baal worship. They offered human sacrifices. They drank their blood, they ate their flesh, and they, they, they offered it up to the Baal, the sun god. In the Old Testament, Baal was the sun god. He's, he's worshipped by different, by different names down through history. But it always come back. And he's always got a female deity with him. Queen of Heaven, Jeremiah chapter 44. Now, if you didn't get it yet, let me give you one last tribulation verse that will help you. Look at Micaiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Micaiah, it's in the Old Testament. Not too far from Hosea, the Mexican apostle. Micaiah chapter 3, verse 1, And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know judgment? Who hate the good and love the evil? Here it comes. Who pluck off the skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones? Who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and as the flesh within a cauldron? Shall they not cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them? He will not even hide from his face from them at that time, uh, and as they have behaved themselves ill in their doing. Now you see that? In the tribulation period, the sacrifice that the Antichrist demands is based on his Baal worship, mystery Babylon the Great that it had in the Old Testament. Now here's what you got. Let me pull it all together for you. Now, when it comes to the devil, Job chapter 41, we want to go back here, the two greatest verses in the Bible on it, verses 12 and 13. He says, I will not conceal, he is talking about the devil, not a crocodile, not a, not, a, not a whirlpool, not a whale, not an elephant. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Now, we're talking about the devil here in chapter 41. Now, let me give you this. His parts will be the men that he uses down in history. His power will be the nations by which he keeps control of the world, and his comely proportion will be his religion that he institutes down through history. And then verse 13, who can discover the face of his garment or who can come with him with his double bridle? 
Now, that passage is probably the greatest key in all uh, the Bible on, on the devil, as chapter 41 and 40 is. But I want to draw your attention to the term face of his garment. You recognize the devil, not by the horns or his tail or his pitchfork. You recognize the devil, if you want to find him in history, you recognize him by the garment that he wears. The garment that he wears shows you his face. And in the Bible, down through history, from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22, you will find that the devil changes garments seven times. If you want to track him, if you want to find him, if you want to know where he's at in relation to where you're at, find the seven garments and lay it out. Now, i got to tell you this. There's only one Bible on the planet that you can trace this through. It's a King James 1611 authorized version. Only one Bible. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. And this is the key to Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots. Now, stay with me here and learn some Bible today, and I'll, I'll make this real easy. Now, when you think of history, let's break it down, because history can be very complicated. When you think of history, all history, we want to think of history like a seven-act play. Like going to Starlight Theater. Sitting down there, getting you a hot dog with nachos and watching a great play, Beat You and the Beast or whatever. Mama fell off the train or whatever they do. And, and, and you it, sitting at Starlight Theater and going through Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, Act 5, Act 6, Act 7. All history around the Bible, the garment changes, is a seven-act play. Act chapter, Act 1, Act chapter 1. Act 1 will run from Genesis to Second Chronicles. And then he changed garments. In that first act, you had the formulation of Israel, the calling out, the establishment, the demise, and the captivity. And then he'd come to the point where he had to change. So he changed garments. And act two was now times of the Gentiles. And he changed his garment because during this time, he now counterfeited everything that was written in the Old Testament. And when he got to that point, he changed garments again. Act three. Act three was the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now during this act three of the play, Rome runs the world as the greatest military power the world has ever seen. Act four brings us into church history. Around 400 AD, the devil saw that the military might of Rome was going to collapse. The Huns of Vandals of, of Germany and in Europe, we're going to come in and sack Rome, and he knew that Rome was not going to survive, so he changes garments again, and this is a key one. So during Act chapter 4, uh, Act 4, Act chapter 4, during Act 4, where in Act 3, Rome ran the world through a military power, now in, Rome, in Act 4, Rome runs the world through a religious organization, the Roman Catholic Church. This runs along from about 300 A.D. up to around 1500 A.D. And then the Catholic Church begins to fracture. The devil knew that it wasn't going to work anymore that way, so he changed garments one more time, and in Act 5, the Reformation came in. So now you find things like the Oxford Movement. I don't have time to get into all this. You find the Roman Catholic Church going underground, going all kinds of things to regain her position. He changed garments. Act 6 started around uh, 
the 1800s with the Zionist movement. God had begun to bring his people, the process to bring his people back to the land, and the devil one more time changed his garments to meet that. The final act will be the rapture of the church, tribulation, second coming, all from 1948 to the rapture of the church. He changed garments one last time. You know, once I lay that out, if you just are any kind of student of history, you can see that thing stands out all the way down through history, just like that. Bang, 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 bang. It's incredible. Now, Old Testament, stay with me now. Keep in mind on number four. Now, Old Testament Baal worship was the devil religion in the Old Testament. You'll find this in Judges chapter 17. You'll find it again in 1 Kings chapter 18, 18, 666. You'll find that in the Old Testament, there's 18 men who foreshadow in their lives and the things that they do, the coming man of sin. You get all this material together. You'll find that Baal worship was a system in the Old Testament where they worshiped the sun, that you had black-robed priests that everybody called Father. Book of Judges. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right there. I mean, Judges chapter 17. Right there. Black-robed priest, an older guy, I mean, a younger guy and an older guy coming up and calling him father. Yeah, that's Old Testament bear worship. And he holds the nations captive by their worship of him through the sun god and Baal, his mother, the queen of heaven, Jeremiah 44. And they demanded in the Old Testament human sacrifices. So people, as you have seen, killed, chopped them up, put them in a cauldron, and, uh, and ate them, and drank their blood, Psalm 16. But as time moved on, and man became more moderate, the devil knows he can't keep doing this. So he has to change garments. So in 325 A.D., we find the end of Rome militarily, and the beginning of Rome as the greatest religious system on the planet, the Roman Catholic Church. And that was the garment change. I study words. You got to look at the combination of words in the English language to get a full meaning of it. There's no way to do that. English language is trash today. Take the word alcoholic. Combination of two words. Alcohol, holic. The word holic is holy. Alka is alcohol. Now, you know, did you ever notice in America is the only country to do that? You never know when you go to Spain in Spanish, they always put the, the, the words ahead of each other backwards. Or we look at it backwards, but they're not really. And uh, what you have here, when you have an alcoholic, you have alcoholic. Holic, holy, holy given, alcohol. Well, an alcoholic is someone who is holy given to alcohol. See how it works? It's real simple. Now, when you go to the book of Revelation, you'll find that the Antichrist is likened to a leopard, a cat, Revelation 13, 2. So we have the word Catholic. The real word Catholic is Catholic. We kind of cut it down a little bit to make it in the English language, but if you took that word in its root form, it would be Catholic. So what you have in a Catholic is, a, is somebody who is wholly given to a cat, Revelation chapter 13. Nothing like a Bible to clear up the problems that people get into. 
And of course, the Antichrist is like a leopard. Now, everybody gets on me because I'm against higher education. I'm not really against higher education. I think everybody should get through the sixth grade. I'm good with that. You know, and I know you go to community college or you go to UMKC or you go wherever you go, and that's fine. I'm I'm really not against it in that sense as long as you understand it. Fundamentally, you need to know this. Higher education is the greatest tool the devil ever used. I don't have time to get into it this morning, but when the Reformation took place and the Oxford movement came in of the Roman Catholic Church, when the devil changed his garments, what he did is through the Jesuit movement infiltrated every college in Europe. And by the time we get into the 1900s in America, they have infiltrated every college in America. I could list on TV, on, uh, on, on, the, on the news programs. I could list for you by just looking at a short bio of each one they talk. I could list for you which ones give their opinion based on the Jesuit training they had without even knowing they had it. Look at where they went to school. Georgetown University, Berkeley University. You kidding me? They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And higher education was designed... I'm not saying you shouldn't go. I'm not saying you shouldn't get a degree in business, get a degree in art graphic, get a degree in whatever you want to get a degree in. I get it. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is higher education was designed to destroy your faith in the Word of God no matter where it was because of the Jesuit influence that comes in. No, I know. I know. I know. What it does is it makes you more loyal to the school that trains you than it does to the Bible that God gave you. And we call it our alma mater. See? Well, where's your alma mater? Uh, We all have a song about our alma mater. I get it. I study words. Alma, Hebrew, virgin. Mata, Greek, mother. Virgin mother. Jesuit influence. People get mad at me because I know things like that. Honestly, I've tried to be as stupid as the rest of the human race. Just can't get there. You go to Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Come here, and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Verse 2 says, Well, which the kings of all the earth have committed fornication to get drunk on her wine. That'll be the church-state religion that the Roman Catholic Church put on through Europe. The wine of her fornication is the wine of the communion, the devil's cup. Verse 4 says, the woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet. That's the official colors of the Roman Catholic Church. Verse 4 says that the, uh, her, uh, uh, her gold and precious stones is her desire. Uh, read Avro Manhattan. Go to any library. The net worth of the Roman Catholic Church is well over $200 billion. Verse 4 says she has a golden cup. The official seal of the Roman Catholic Church is a golden cup. Verse 6 says the woman has murdered and killed God's people. We have 2,000 years of her butchering the Waldensians and the Albigensians and the Huguenots and the Polyssians and the Anabaptists. Hundreds of millions that were murdered and tortured and butchered from 500 to 1600. I know who she is. Now when you get to verse 18 it says this. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now look at verse 9, and here comes your city. Notice, I haven't opened one Greek lexicon today. 
I haven't one to one Hebrew manuscript to get what I've given you. In fact, if you could spend all your day in there, you couldn't get nothing of what I've given you this morning. No Greek, no Hebrew, just an AV 1611, English translation that is perfect, inspired of God, the Word of God that God had given you and me. Verse 9 says, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. There's only one city in the world outside of Jerusalem the world recognizes built on seven mountains. You see, God's got his city built on seven mountains. The devil's got his city built on seven mountains, and it's Rome. Don't take my word for it. Get standard encyclopedia, wonk and wagon all, and you'll find it right there. They'll list the seven mountains for you. So as the verse says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. You see, as we started to come down through history, the Old Testament Baal worship, where they ate the literal sacrifices, and then you got the Roman Empire coming on the scene militarily, and then they die off, and now the devil wants to get a world, so he wants to reinstitute his Baal worship, but he knows he can't do it. He knows that Hannibal Lecter is not going to be very popular. Nobody's going to want to go to Hannibal's church. So he has to make it respectable. But Baal worship, listen to me, Baal worship is human sacrifice of eating a body and drinking blood. So he has to change the cannibalism. So in what he does, instead of eating people, he creates a religion that every Sunday you take a hope that is the actual, literal body, flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, and you eat that body, and then you take the cup and they turn it through transubstantiation into the literal blood of Christ. And instead of eating the flesh and the blood of people in the Old Testament, now you eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. And overnight, he changed 8 billion people into cannibals, and they didn't even know it. You realize that a Catholic priest has the power to take that wafer, and he changes that wafer into the literal, complete body of Jesus Christ. He thinks that that is the act. He has the power through the black magic of the Roman Catholic Church to change that wafer into the body of Christ. In the old, back in the Dark Ages, they had great theological discussion. What happened if a rat broke into the church and ate one of the consecrated wafers? Would that rat have eternal life for the rest of his life? If they drop, you ever notice how they put that golden chalice under your neck when you take that? You stick your tongue out to the priest and he puts that on your lip. You know why? That's so God won't fall on the floor. Because if God falls on the floor, there's an eight-hour progression that he has to go through to get him up. He believes that they have the power to take that fermented hooch, the devil's cup, Deuteronomy chapter 32, and turn it into the literal, literal, literal blood of Jesus Christ and you eat it, and you drink it. Boy, he pulled one over on us. And overnight, he turned 8 billion people in their church into Old Testament cannibals, and they don't even know it. Stop and think about that. Eating the literal body of Jesus Christ and drinking his literal blood through a black magic system only given to the Roman Catholic Church called transubstantiation. The power to turn that wafer into the real flesh and blood. 
and where he wanted to get the Jews to him and ate their enemies in the Old Testament and he'll eat the Jews as a sacrifice to him in the tribulation. Now he's got 8 billion people eating the body of Christ as a sacrifice to him in the church age. Halloween. All the goops and goblins are out. We all know the story that was put into effect by Bram Stoker back in, what was it, 1894, somewhere in there, where he wrote the book Dracula. We've seen a lot of playoffs on Dracula. It started with the 1920s and then just moved up, and about every three or four years, you know, um, somebody a movie about Dracula. And we all know Dracula. Dracula is a vampire. He's from Transylvania in Romania. He has a castle there. Glenn Miller wrote a song to him called Transylvania 65000. No, that was Pennsylvania 65000. Sorry about that. <laughs> Most people don't know the true story of Dracula. So I'm going to tell it to you. Here we go. Once upon a time, children, in a dark place in Romania, there was a man named Glad. He was born in 1408. Later, after he lost his castle, he started manufacturing bags, and now we know him as Glad Bags. <laughs> not true, not true. His name was Glad. He was a Roman Catholic. And Romania, in 1400, was the hotbed of New Testament Christianity. John Huss and Czechoslovakia, the whole nation had come to Christ. And Christianity had spread all through there. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church during the 1400s were right before the Reformation. We're in the, we're in the Dark Ages. So, him being a Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church has different orders, the Teutonic Knights. Well, there was an order in Romania called the Order of the Dragon. And his father was a member of the Order of the Dragon. And the Order of the Dragon was to cleanse the Roman Catholic Church in Romania from all the heretics, i.e. Bible believers. So Glad comes to the throne after his father's demise, but before his father died, he changed his name from Glad to Dracula, who means son of the dragon. So Dracula spends the rest of his life, his name was Dracula the Impaler. He takes his victims, born-again Bible-believing Christians, Turks too, they don't like them either, but especially born-again Christians, and he impaled them on stakes within his estate. And it is rumored that he drank their blood and he ate their flesh. So when Bram Stoker read the story, took the story, cultivated into what we know as the modern day Dracula, who in all reality was a Roman Catholic man after the order of the dragon whose whole life was to impale and kill God's people and all his life, whether he ate their flesh or drunk their blood is immaterial, all his life he ate the flesh and drank the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in the mass. That's Dracula for you. Now that's called understanding. That's called figuring out what's going on in history. And again, you can just Google Dracula on the internet and get it. It's, it's common knowledge to anybody who is not just satisfied with where they're at and doesn't want to learn. So we see that the Roman Catholic Church today 
has become the Old Testament, what the Old Testament Baal worship was in the Old Testament, and through the garment change, he brings it about. Now, when we get back into the tribulation, he changes garments again. That's the last one. And now he becomes God. He sits on the throne. He declares himself to be God, and now we see the real weight of what he demands because he demands human sacrifices again. And as I gave you the verses in Psalms and those places back there, they actually eat, fillet the skin, chop them up, put them in a cauldron, and eat like sheep to the slaughter, all that takes place. You know, vampire, you know, when Bram Stoker wrote that, I mean, I told you before, everything that unsaved man does has a run back to the Bible. And of course, when he saw Dracula, he just saw, he just saw what had already been happening. But Dracula, in the fictional character that he is, it fits so much into the Bible. Dracula can only be out at night. Picture the church age. When the sun comes up in the morning, he's got to get out of the sunlight. Picture the second coming of Christ. Malachi chapter 4. Nothing shall be hid from the heat thereof when the sun comes up. All that is a picture of what's going on, and all that is a picture of when a man wants to make a story that becomes the story of Dracula. He has to base it on what the Bible says and what the type is what was going on in Romania. Oh, there was a real Dracula, but he was a Roman Catholic. And yes, he, he, uh, he was connected with a dragon. And all of his life, he ate flesh and he drank blood through the Roman Catholic system. And that's what you find. Now the verse, the last part of it says, and again, the tribulation context, the sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind. Now let's look at the last part of this verse. Now the last part of this verse deals with the, the, the mindset of the Antichrist, the man of sin. His wicked mind set to destroy all the Jews on earth, to eradicate the nation of Israel. He has tried to do this through nations down through history. Europe has a long track record of banishing and murdering and killing the Jews. The Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't until Vatican II in the 1960s that they gave the Jewish people uh, 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 abstaining from, from the killing of Christ. Up to that point, they blamed them, and they were called Christ killers, and the Roman Catholic Church severely persecuted them. But again, when the garment change happened, he couldn't get away with that. So we see that all down through history he tried to do that. He tried to do it in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 1940s. And today we see that all the Middle East, all the nations that are connected with the Antichrist and the devil, the Muslim nations, are ringing around the nation of Israel just waiting for somebody to blow the whistle to wipe them off the map. And when the Antichrist comes, when the rapture of the church takes place, and the Antichrist comes, Revelation chapter 12 and 13, his wicked mind and all that he does, his wicked mind is going to be for one thing, and that is to kill the Jews and make them his sacrifice. It's unparalleled down through history. Now, this will help us understand that there's so much that that goes on in history around us. And the King James 1611 is the only Bible on the planet that will lay the devil out and give you who he is. It'll show you the garment changes. It'll show you his parts. It'll show you his power. It'll show you his comely proportion. And that's why the devil hates this book. That's why the devil hates the Word of God. The Bible is the only book on the planet that will reveal who he is. Because the Bible says, I will not conceal the face of his garments. He'll lay it out. 
and he can, he, the devil's plan is that he would love everybody to join his church. That's why the Catholic Church, if you, some of you were former Catholics, you know as well as I do, that when you get married, you've got to get married in the church. When you have kids, you've got to sign a piece of paper that they'll, be mar- they'll grow up in that church. Everything in that church is to keep you there, and he would love for the whole world. That's why in all of Europe and South America, when you're born, you don't join a Catholic church. You're born a Roman Catholic because they're church-state setups. He's got it everywhere. He would love every one of you to be part of that church. But he knows that that's not going to happen because some of God's people are a little smarter than that. So he'll settle, settle for this. He'll let you stay in your Baptist church. He'll let you go to Sunday morning service, Sunday school, Wednesday night service, Bible study. He'll let you do all those things if you'll just use his Bible. And the tragic part is that 99% of saved, born-again pastors and churches this morning, right now, or helping him fulfill his agenda by standing in their pulpits and telling everybody what's wrong with God's word that he gave you. If the devil can't get you to go and join his church, then he'll allow you to stay in it. Just be happy in using his Bible about him as Christ instead of the Lord's Christ. That's why the places in the NIV over there in Isaiah where it talks about uh, the prophecies of Christ, they've taken them out and put the prophecies of the devil in. He wants that designation, and those Bibles give him that. That's why they take the blood out, because he he can't stand the blood. You want to talk about vampires, I'll talk about blood-sucking vampires from Jupiter some night. Blood is an incredible thing in the Bible. It's what the the, the, the demonic devils desire. It represents the purity of Christ. It's an incredible study in the Bible. then that's what you get when you get understanding. You look at the world, you look at history, you look at the Bible, you look at what's going on around you, and you're never fooled because you have a book that unfolds everything in front of you. You see now that the mystery of Babylon, the mother of harlots, has been solved. The city is Rome. The Old Testament bear worship to the New Testament bear worship. The cannibalism in the Old Testament, the cannibalism today under the guise of religion and what we're going to see in the tribulation period. Proverbs chapter 3, and I close with this, 1 through 6. We won't get any farther than this. We'll pick it up next week. My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. Now you see those two things there, the neck and the heart. The neck is man's will. And the heart is man's attitude. When you have the Word of God around your neck, it breaks your will to do God's will. And when you have it into your heart, your heart follows the heartbeat of God. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. There it is. You want understanding? Good understanding? Then get the Word of God around your neck and in your heart. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. And all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. You want to be directed through the paths of life? Get in the book. Put them around your neck. Let it break your will. Put it into your heart. Give you the right attitude of heart toward the things of God. And then you get understanding. And you can look at life 
the Bible, history, whatever you want to see. There is no mystery that God has given to in the Bible that you and I cannot solve because we have the book that solves the mysteries. We'll hold up there. Let's pray. Father.